Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome.
there's something worthwhile there. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Mm -hmm. Well, it's worthwhile that you guys are here. Thank you. We've got a fun podcast month to discuss. We had uh, James Martin, our friend, our Catholic priest friend. He's a Jesuit, right? Yeah, he's a Jesuit. Yeah, our friend. No response there. And then we had uh, Science Mike. And then we had Richard Rohr for two rounds. So that's a, that's a pretty good month. That's a good month. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, noticing the tattoo in your arm, I knew, Richard, that this would be a great month for you. Uh, what is the tattoo again? Of Rublev's Icon of the Trinity. And what is Richard Rohr's book? Kind of It's the about the Trinity. Do you guys, do you feel like if you like showed him your arm, he'd be like, we're, we're like soul connected. I don't know. Does he like tattoos? Does he, you know? I don't know. I so. He likes everything. He does. Yeah. No, that's kind of one of the reasons I got it. I got it because, you know, that Rublev icon is a big, mm-hmm. it's hospitality, it's Trinity. It's an interesting, interesting Is there icon. a mirror? Is oh. there a mirror in your? A mirror? Yeah, right, that was the, the metaphor of his favorite painting. Yeah, because there's supposedly, he said that there's like some, some glue or residue that they believe to be glue that held on a mirror on the front of the icon that over the years has been lost, right? That's what you're referring that's to? What, that's what Rohr said. <clears throat> Have you heard that before? No. Never heard I had that. not heard that before. Well, I'm sure it's true. Mm-hmm. But the, basic, the image that he played with was that that's an invitation for us to participate in the divine dance yeah. of the Trinity. The fourth hmm. member of the Trinity in Eastern Orthodox. You like that? Yeah. Wait, what's the fourth member? The, the image of God in a human being. Oh. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and on the Rublev icon, you know, there's that, there is that kind of space at the front of the icon that kind of invites the, the fourth person into it, which is, you know, I think a pretty powerful image. Yeah. invitation into the, the life of God. Which is interesting, though, because the Trinity hasn't been, like, in our faith tradition, uh, yeah. a doctrine that we've spent a lot of time with. And I remember I had a funny experience here at ACU a couple of years ago. Um, Fred Aquino and Paul Moore's professors here, you know, were doing a thing on Tillich and, um, and Einstein, and they're trying to create a faith-science mm-hmm. connection. And there was this kind of kind of angry older dude up in the audience and he had a kind of a harsh sounding voice he's like well the problem with telic was he didn't believe in the trinity and i was like who is this guy who who let this joker in and uh, afterwards i was talking to paul and fred and i was like you know i mean the trinity's kind of a hard doctrine to get your head around i mean what well, who is that crazy old guy he goes oh that was stanley howard <laughs> and I said, who's Stanley Hauerwas? This is before I was really doing a lot of reading or blogging. He said, well, he's kind of a big deal, you know. Yeah. But that was like my first introduction. The Trinity is kind of really important to yeah. lots yeah. of theologians, and our, our tradition hasn't really emphasized it a whole lot. I like your Stanley Hauerwas impersonation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty solid. Yeah. <laughs> so why do you think the Trinity isn't a big part of our tradition? It's not in the Bible. I mean, yeah. you got that passage in Corinthians, but... Most words. Uh. <laughs> I like that you just put your ace on the table right away. <laughs> well, Luke, it's, it's not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. I'm just answering the question. Do you, Grace? Do you think you talk about it much? Um, I I always pray in a tri- trinitarian fashion: Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Yeah, I noticed that last night. It was a nice touch. Why do you do that? To remind myself that it's true. But I don't know how much I, I don't know how Trinitarian my preaching is. I mean, I'm probably Anabaptist to the core. So we probably lean really heavy into Jesus and let the other two kind of mm. sort it out. <laughs> they can fight for a second place. Do you, think, do you think there's a limitation for leaning more towards Jesus than the other two? What do you mean? Like, what do you, th- okay, so if, I think Roar stuff was that Jesus is the personal uh, you know, the spirit was uh, was like transpersonal, or the spirit was impersonal. The father is transpersonal, and so you know, God is a transcendent one. The spirit is. Um, I understand there's different facets of the God head in each of the three represented. Do you feel like there's something? No, I don't know. His argument is that when when you don't have the Trinity, when you don't have God the Father, then you can lose the transcendent. Of God, mm. and if Jesus is the main one, then it's just God is personal, God is imminent, and then you miss the transcendence of who God is. And so maybe part of his critique was that 
in you know liberal or progressive Christianity, there seems to be an inability to bow and worship because God is not that transcendent, that, that God has been reduced. Well, Jesus has been reduced in some expression. So it's not just that the Trinity is being reduced to Jesus, it's that Jesus himself is being reduced. Um, so there's, and, it, and that happens on the fundamentalist conservative side too, but I don't know, Richard, what do you think? I mean, I, I think when you focus on Jesus, your Christianity becomes really moral and ethical, you know, because hmm. it's often like, what would Jesus do? So I think there's a there's a thought about, yeah. and, and it can be good, you know, like like for me, the, the, the cruciformity of Jesus's life is kind of a, but I mean, that's an aspirational behavioral kind of thing I'm trying to aspire to. But I think when you dwell on the, it sounds like when Roar talks about the, the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, he's talking about that kind of sacramental Catholic ontology where the Spirit kind of broods over creation. He talked about mm-hmm. and, love that and Hopkins, Gerard Manley Hopkins poem that the creation, you know, the world kind of yeah. crackles with the grandeur of God. So uh, that imminence, I think, mm-hmm. is, is is there's the transcendent, there's the kind of personal, and then there's yeah. the imminent, and and but it seems like he also gets there with the cosmic Christ. And so how right. how the cosmic Christ and the Holy Spirit are the same or different? I'm not. Oh, that's I'm not, interesting. I'm not sure, but he's still trying to get to that sense of like everything is sacred, everything is holy, from a tree to a dog to a human being. Yeah. Um, Wouldn't he does, say okay. in the cosmic Christ that it would be the physical, like the because it's the first incarnation of? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, right, right. Then the. It does seem like as I'm just thinking about different people in churches I've served, it does seem like it's easier to go off the rails if you put all your eggs in the God basket or all your eggs in the spirit basket than it does if you put all your eggs in the Jesus basket. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree with that. Yeah. I mean, you could, you could even read kind of European history and theology in the God side of it, and then you can read kind of hyper unhealthy charismatic fundamentalism in the spirit side. So I think if you're if you're gonna put your weight down heavier in one part, I mean that's my Anabaptist. Yeah, you're gonna go Jesus. Sure. And that, I think that's the thing I would ask I've never spent time with Richard Bohr, but to me I don't hear him talk a lot about the crucified Christ. Huh. Um mm. and that to me has been a real part like Moltmann's the crucified God mm-hmm. and, and like the The, the only time Christ. I have is when he really goes on Christus Victor stuff. Okay. Yeah. But that's more, uh, that for me hasn't been writing, that's been more of his presentations. Yeah. What do you think about his cosmic Christ stuff? Have you paid much attention to well, that? Well, it's in the Bible. Yeah, no, well, I, at least that's in the Bible. But the way... Since we're, <laughs> the second ace has been... <laughs> hey, well, well, Jonathan. I was, he asked I, a question. I, I see I your giving. Bible and I raise you another Bible. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, for me, it's I've very used biblical. it, because that Colossians passage, yeah. of the, I mean, because it's Colossians 1, right? Yeah. He, was before all things he all all John things, one, yeah, all things one, hold yeah. together in him and all things will be so for people with me with very kind of hopeful eschatologies that co- the cosmic christ the idea is if i mean think about it this way if you people like me have used that as a way to kind of get around the the ex- inclusive but exclusive yeah. tension in a, in a universalist soteriology that is to say is if, if there if and i think world would agree with this that if Christ is everything, then everything is already in Christ. Mm-hmm. You can't really be outside of Christ, and so therefore you can be exclusivistic in your claim. Everything will be saved through Christ because Christ is cosmic. So um, so I've used that text you know, in conversations about a hopeful eschatology before. Yeah. yeah. I haven't used it in an ontological sense, the sacramental ontology. I've mainly used it to kind of say, how can you be outside of Christ if Christ is cosmic? Yeah, so Graves, I know that you've you preached on it at Otto Creek not too mm-hmm. long ago. Uh, Josh, or Jonathan, by your question, I assume that you're not as much of a fan as the, of the idea of cosmic Christ? No, I, I love it. I feel like uh, there's a tension that between Jesus of Nazareth and cosmic Christ that you've got to hold on to. Which is what? Like the local and the universal? The yeah, and there's a whole history, too, of scholarship that has been 
a tug of war between those two things. Right. How human is Jesus really? How cosmic is he really? Yeah. So I would I would say the one concern I have of cosmic Christ is the way it would be used, which is to, you know, God is everywhere, so I'm not going to show up anywhere. Um, you know, like, I think it can be used in radical individualistic societies to just keep going. And, hmm. and you know... Which obviously would be contrary to what Rohr is pushing for with yeah, yeah. Trinitarian. Yeah, well, N.T. Wright would talk a lot about that, too. If you know that's where history is going, how could you not be anything but compelled to participate in the journey to get yeah. to that yeah. place? Yeah. Okay, so uh, Rohr says uh, one of the foundations is where you start. And if you start with original sin, you get to one conclusion. And if you get to original so good. goodness... What do you think it's so good for? Original blessing? Yeah. just need to correct you. Well, I mean... (laughs) I think it's one of the single greatest critiques of Protestant Christianity, the whole, do you start reading the Bible in Genesis 1 or Genesis 3? I mean, that, that for me was... I don't don't even know the right word. That for me was put together so many things I could never name. Yeah. Because you feel... You feel like you're allowed and able to speak to the goodness, and you don't have to start with total depravity? Or at least that's one of the things that's helped me with. Everything splinters out from that question. Your atonement theory, eschatology, the mission of the church... Low view of humanity, high view of humanity, re- the purpose of relationships. How do you define the word sin? Like yep. everything. It's like it's like when architects talk about, you know, if you're just off one degree, the first few steps, it's not a big deal. But the further out you go, you just get wider and wider and wider and wider. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think you end up with the whole gospel is just about getting rid of your sin. Right. Right. And so that's the, it, it reduces it because it's always off from the very beginning. Have you talked about original have you talked about some, Richard? Well, I mean, in my in my books, I kind of come at it from a different kind of way. But you know, the in the slavery of death, it's 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 in, it's it's a, a revisioning of it, saying there's ancestral sin, so Adam and Eve kind of sin and introduce death. This is mm-hmm. the orthodox view, and so humans aren't inherently depraved. We're weak and vulnerable because of our survival instincts. You know, we're tempted into variety of practice, but there is not an innate depravity. It's just we're frail. Yeah. And so we lack the capacity to kind of overcome our anxieties. And so that's where the Holy Spirit can kind of fit in, right? God's Spirit fills us and gives us the capacity to, to, to live Christ-like lives. So our problem isn't depravity. The problem is just that we're mortal. We're human beings. Yeah. And so to me, I find that greatly a source of great compassion for people. I mean, I mean, we all can identify with with frailty and weakness and moral failures. I mean, we get it. Like, we understand that um, even if somebody acts violently, I kind of get it. Like, if somebody was protecting their family, I, I, I get it. I get the instincts that motivate human beings, and, and there but for the grace of God go I. So, yeah. um, so I don't talk a lot about it. And that's another thing about our tradition. We, we don't, even though we didn't talk a lot about the Trinity, we, we tended to believe, going back to Richard Rohr, that people embodied the Imago Dei, that you know, we were born innocent, and yeah. um, then there was this weird, neurotic age of accountability. Mm-hmm. You know, but, but at least we felt we didn't believe in total depravity. I think that was a healthy impulse in our movement that, that I think we should keep a hold of. I think the deeper question is not, are we wicked, or, uh, but it's really, the backup question is, I think there's only really one theological question behind anything, which is what is God ultimately like? Mm-hmm. And if God is fundamentally for you mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. against you, because if right. you kind of mess up there, that 10 right. degrees, that sets your whole faith right. on the trajectory of managing God's againstness versus right. a fundamental belief that... Yeah, Genesis 1, God is for you. Right, exactly. Genesis 3, now he's against you. Yeah. So a couple of weeks ago, I have a 7-year-old, a 4-year-old, and a... 13-month-old, three boys. A couple of weeks ago, we had a guy's night. My wife was out with friends, and we were eating pizza because that's what you do yep. for guy's night. And I asked the, my sons, I said, what's your favorite thing about Jesus? Because I'm trying to figure out what am I emphasizing. I know what I'm saying, but what am I emphasizing? Lucas, the seven-year-old, said, my favorite thing about Jesus is he died for our sins. My four-year-old Finn said, my favorite thing about Jesus is he cares about all of creation. 
so obviously I like Finn better in that, <laughs> in that, in that moment, right? And the 13-month-old just stared blankly. So apparently I'm raising a Baptist, a Pentecostal, and a monk. Um, but it, it is... Have you used that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> that seemed too polished. Yeah. But it is, uh, it's really scary and humbling to think about, because I, I mean, this is a, I live for these conversations, but these are the conversations uh, that reveal what I'm passing down to my sons. And if I could quote one of my favorite Bruce Springsteen songs, he says, uh, I only have this one wish. He's talking to his son in this song. And that's that your mistakes would be your own. I think, you know, I've talked about that song before. So we're like the real implications is not just what we think, but how did you pass this down to your sons? How are you passing Mm -hmm. this down to your children? Um, That's why I care about this because I want them to have the fullest picture of God that I can possibly Mm -hmm. hand down to them. I like framing it like that. The, the, th- the question behind the question is, is God for you or against you? It's not so much about us. I think that's a good way of summarizing that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, let's stay with the Catholics. Let's go to James Martin. So we talked about... Uh, hold on. Hold on. Let's just, can we just do this one thing? <laughs> I feel like you need to have some kind of detoxing. I feel like you need to have some kind of detoxing every what? time you come back from no. Richard Rohr. Why? Just because a Rohr talk. Cod- <laughs> yes, he coddles you. It just does. <laughs> no, it's not that. Why? No, you're such a good student, Luke. You're. He gets you're so me. One- <laughs> he gets you. He yeah. gets me. I I really question if that's true. I, I. And the thing is, you're Luke, and he's got a kind of. Obi-Wan look about him. I just keep thinking of Star Wars the entire time. Mm, good job, Luke. And, yeah. and you see the picture of you Wait, two together? Yeah, that goes That makes Larry. You, Larry. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Well, you know, I'm sorry, guys. That You uh, learned well. He'll say things like that. You know, listen well. That's exactly right, Luke. You're mm-hmm. taking this to a deep place. How come instead of assessing his flaws, why don't you let him be a source of illumination for your flaws and your inability to appreciate the friend you have right in front of you. I feel like that's where you guys should go. Yeah. Speaking of total depravity. <laughs> okay, let's talk about one of my other Catholic friends, James Martin. Okay. I like James Martin. Mm-hmm. Of course. Yeah, yeah. Where did you first introduce his work? I, I think, oh, I think it was his book that, I, I'm going to butcher the title, but it was like the Jesuit... Guide to Absolutely Everything? Yeah, the Jesuit Guide to Absolutely okay. Everything. And it was my first kind of um, introduction, kind of Ignatian spirituality, but in a very practical yeah. kind of way. And, I, and what really captured me about the Jesuit and Ignatian spirituality is I think it's called contemplation and action. And I've never been a really contemplative person. I struggle with it. It's just not my, you know, if I go on a silent retreat or contemplative retreat, I'll just take a nap. Like, it's just like <laughs> I can't. I just... <laughs> and and so, but that kind of vision of contemplation actually just really captured. So I love that book, and so I've gone on to read you know a bunch of his other books. Cool. Did Graves and Storm? I bet you first got to know him through the Colbert Report. Yes, is mm-hmm. that right? That was my introduction. Yeah, me too. And I was like, wow, this this guy's amazing. He's hanging with Colbert, which is not an easy thing to do. Mm-hmm. He's he's giving it back to him, and he's presenting a pretty solid view of God. Yeah, you know he was the chaplain for that show, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. James told me that. <laughs> Jim, I thought you'd go with uh <laughs> Well, he's not in the room, so I'll just call yeah. him. He, I'm not going to, this is, there's no way to make this sound humble. I could try, but it's going to be impossible. So on Facebook, he, he posted this, and he goes, uh, you know my friend, Pastor Luke Norris, he's got a really great take on the uh, Saints. And so I feel like... The know, NFL reference? Or the Major League <laughs> Baseball reference? It can't be. Is that what he was referring no, to? No, I feel like I had a Catholic priest say that I've got a good take on the Saints. So in a lot of ways, if you guys have any questions, I'm kind of an expert now. Yeah, tell us about them then. Yeah. How many saints can you name in 10 seconds? Go, 10, 9, No, I'm eight, not going to do that because I'm too the, humble. All the apostles. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, just do that. That's what we'd like to hear. <laughs> just do that. No, this Three, is, two, this is one. Not, this is not about me. Uh, it's not about me at all. But I do like the newest saint, uh, which is Mother Teresa. Yeah. Um, I have a question for the two of you. Thank you. Get it off yeah. him. <laughs> what, 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 what was that move? <laughs> I do about the saints. Okay. 
Okay. Yeah, because you're not a snake. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'm an expert, and you want to ask a normal. No, because we asked you to name as many as you, you knew, and you couldn't he, name and one. And he did. He did. <laughs> no, he did okay. Name. No, seri- serious I, question. Serious question. Fine. For all three of you. That's a How did you feel at, when it came out that Mother Teresa had essentially been betrayed by her confidant? I get so I I read that book in Childers, a class I, st- I audited Come with be my light. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and one of the things he said that was so great because our class or he's just, a priest. It's like right? a book club. Yeah, he's a priest. Uh-huh. Mother Teresa is telling him all this stuff. You know, my greatest fear is that it would be published. <laughs> Here it is in a book. Right. And um, Childers let everybody. I mean, that's some bad karma you're messing with. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Now she. If she has any kind of active role, <laughs> yeah. um, Childers let everybody kind of vent about how that that was lame and stuff. And then he said, but you know, one of the things I appreciate is that that's in the book. Please don't put this in the book. Is in the book. Like, they, they're not covering that up. They're not pretending like... Um, and I, I think there's something to that. To me, it's kind of like leaked emails. No, they're stolen emails. Mm. Yeah. They're not leaked. They're stolen. See, but I think what, what James was saying about, about her, I think she is kind of like a, a saint for our current time. Because I, I know all of y'all in this room, we all walk with kind of a limp in our faith. Right. And that... Those letters, reading those, are ga- they're great grace to me. No, no question. I just I feel like there's such an emphasis when you're trained in seminary about confidentiality and the, the very thin line of credibility you have with people that, frankly, it just really surprised me that that. Hey, and life's messy. I'm not. I don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, there doesn't need to be a witch hunt after this guy. I just I haven't heard many people talk about that ethical, the ethical side, side of it. Yeah, yeah. Can you spend any any? Can you spend that in a positive way, Richard? That it's a good thing for him to. Or that is the right thing to do. I mean, no, I don't know if I can spin it. I mean, I, I agree with Jonathan and I think Josh as well. I think you're, I'm grateful that they were published, but I don't know about the ethics yeah. of it. I don't know. You know, I don't know if the means justify the ethical. I, I think there ends are there. I think there are a lot of people. Yeah who have connected to her and they wouldn't have been able to do that if her story's not told. Now, um, if, if that guy gets karma on him, well, you know, sorry yeah. about that. It'd be interesting but to hear then, Catholics talk about it because that, that, that's one of the few privileged communications out there. I mean, right. I, I mean so it's even, that's even a stronger, mm-hmm. illegally, Dr. Norsworthy can weigh in on this, but the confidentiality between a therapist and a client is less sacrosanct than that. Like, there's... A few privileged conversations, lawyer, client, and right. yeah. a priest. Yeah. So it's the fact that it was a priest that I mean that is kind of like the top of the line of the lock box. So the the, <laughs> mor- the moral is though, if you have a priest, just live longer than your priest. Yeah. <laughs> we heard. Okay. We, Don't die before. You. Okay. The, you two and I, we heard a story from a pastor who someone confessed to him like this heinous crime. Oh, right. And he was like a murder. A murder. And he wasn't able to legally tell the police. And the person ended up not going to jail because of, there was no uh, indicting evidence. And I've, was, I've actually lived that situation. That's, that is partly why I'm passionate about when I was in Detroit. We had a kid who, uh, he's since. Uh, gone to court, been exonerated, but he was on methadone. He's a heroin addict. He's a member of our church. Another member of our church was a heroin addict, and he received a cocktail methadone mixed on a Sunday night. On Monday morning, I turned my cell phone on. I completely shut it off. I had like 70 text messages. Ten of them were from the young man who'd given his methadone, which when you're on methadone, you sign something like, this is like having a gun. You can't. You're accountable. Uh, the other young man who he had given methadone and had mixed it with some other things, member of our church, overdosed and died. The only evidence that was out there that he had received the methadone from this other kid in our church were the text message he had sent me 
and something that this young man orally had spoken to the girlfriend of the kid who died. So I'm 26 years old. I don't know how this worked. You know, I didn't know exactly yeah. how this worked. So the Rochester Hills police, the very first person they call when they are putting the story together, and they asked me to come in and submit my phone. As I'm driving, we had a therapist on staff at the church who said, you can't turn your phone over. And I was thinking, how could I not? Yeah. Yeah. So that's part of the reason I'm passionate is I've lived that very wow. razor thin line. Yeah. Yeah. Luke, if you pass, I will tell everyone everything. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Because they're all positive things. Right. Yeah. Okay. So did you hear any of the uh, <laughs> critique of Mother Teresa over, I guess it was two weeks sure. ago, where they said, you know, she never knew the gospel and, you know, it's a shame. Oh, no. I heard it more from the, like, progressive side. She didn't give people actual health care. Did y'all... No, I didn't hear that. No. I heard it, I heard it mainly from Richard Hitchens' right. critique. You know, he was... Christopher Hitchens? Christopher, yeah. yeah. Christopher Hitchens' You're critique. You're combining your atheist. Yeah, yeah, Richard Dawkins. Yeah, Richard Dawkins. <laughs> <laughs> that would that'd be a crazy hybrid yeah. person right there. Though. Richard Hitchens. <laughs> so Hitchens Harris. before he died. <laughs> before he died, yeah, hyphenated. Before he died, he critiqued her on the actual like on yeah, the ground I think results. He might have. Yeah, I think when they were putting her for canonization, the, the Catholic Church solicits. You know, devil's advocate. Devil, devil's advocate. I don't know if he was the official devil's advocate, but anyway, he played the devil's advocate and he wrote a big scathing criticism and it publishes as a book called I think the book is called I hesitate to say this in the podcast called The Missionary Position can you believe that that was the title of the book well, but for it, the it record a, uh, it, some it, of us laughed and a, held the microphone it's away it's scathing no it's a scathing indictment I, I mean he was I mean you know how he would go he would, he would not hold back but and so um, the critique basically was well, I think that she, um, yeah, did not give appropriate health care because she kind of glorified in the suffering of, in, in the poor as they were, you know, suffering were participating in the sufferings of Christ. And so she, um, a lot of people criticized her that she um, um, wasn't completely disinterested and wanted to convert people as well. And so she wasn't wholly benevolent in that sense. She had a kind hmm. of ulterior motive. And so... You see, you've heard, I understand some abortion, that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, the conservative hmm. views on that. Hmm. Man, if if you can go after Mother Teresa, who <laughs> can't you go? After? Yeah, it seems like a bad strategy to <laughs> yeah. me. Okay, so the other saints. Uh, we know obviously Richard Beck is a big fan of the Little Way. Yeah, Therese of Lesu. Lesu. I feel like I'm always saying her name. I wrong. say it wrong too, so I'll just say it like a text. Really? Like, Therese Lesu. Yeah, <laughs> twelve ways you can. This say sounds it. right to me. Yeah. Which uh, Graves Stormont? Who are your favorite, or the saints that would stand out to you the most? You connected with the most? That he talks about. Yeah. Or, or you can go wherever you can freestyle that if you want. So when I was in the first time I went to London, I saw the wing of Westminster Abbey which they're dedicating to saints of the 20th century. Have you guys seen that? I haven't Martin seen it live, King. but yeah. It's, no, it's picture. Desmond Tutu's on there. Uh, it's, it's phenomenal. Uh, so I probably go a lot more modern. For me, it would be Dr. King, but that's a, that's a Protestant yeah. organization. Martin said that he counts as one, I think, so you're, you're good. Remind me the mm-hmm. saints he talked about again. Talked about uh, Merton. We yeah. talked about Teresa Avil. Avil, how do you say her name? Avila. Yeah. Avila. Ju- did you. he do talk about Julian Morich? Uh, I, I don't know we if she came up it. in that podcast or not. Yeah, I know that. That's that's fair. Yeah, yeah. Dorothy Day is Dorothy Day in that group? I don't know. She, she would. She, might she would be, be with the, the Westminster group, the yeah, Protestant right, right. saints. Yeah. Well, she's Catholic. Day's Catholic. Yeah, but she's. What I should have said is, as recognized by Westminster oh, Abbey, okay, yeah. a Protestant mm-hmm. church. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So for you, has the Catholic Church sainted Dorothy Day? Well, I think somebody's <clears throat> nominated her. Okay, but she that may be a little she tougher. Had an abortion, right? It's like getting Pete Rose in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> <laughs> but had a shady career. <laughs> but that was hey, that's that's got some legs. But that was one of the compelling things about how uh, Martin described all the saints is that there's a lot of yeah. skeletons in the closet for yeah. those people. There's yeah. just a lot of see. Don't tips. give up. That <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
I know. Just live longer than Jonathan. That's the class that I took that was kind of breeding club. Basically, Childers had us read. Did you say breeding club? Read, reading, reading club. club? Yes. Oh, okay. He's definitely in a breeding club. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he is in a breeding club. Check your phone. Check my, your my phone. My wife out. and I have a baby due this week. <laughs> <laughs> that, these inside jokes aren't going to go well in the. So we I read. Feel like they're doing great. <laughs> we read a, a book every week from a different century. So it was Teresa of Avila was one. Julian of Norwich was another. Merton was when we got. Mm-hmm. But Julian of Norwich is my favorite. I mean, she she would be like my patron saint because hmm. in the in the um, Black Plague, she she has given her life so much to the Lord that she lives in like a prison cell that she chose inside a church building to just pray for the people. Um, and during that, she's the one who writes, "All is well, all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well." During the Black Plague. And, and she was really close with another prominent male mystic. St. John um, of the Cross? Yeah, St. John of the Cross. Not that Teresa of Avila was. Yeah, but Teresa of Avila. Okay, yeah. I'm mixing my stories. Sorry. Mixing our saints up. Marjorie Kemp, y'all ever heard of her? Mm-mm. She's got, like, the first autobiography, and it is nuts. Like, she like is, mystic, ecstatic experiences. Yeah, yeah. It's not just that. Like, it's she is... Randy Harris says, um, the question isn't whether she's crazy. She's obviously crazy. <laughs> the question is, is that an ending point or a starting point? Because mm. <laughs> she is, I mean, it is. But that's the thing about the saints is that you almost, they're, yeah, they're all a little, St. Francis mm-hmm. right, was a little out there. I mean, he's preaching to birds. And, yeah. And, and uh, so, yeah, I always, I've always struck by that degree of which you have to be a little bit off to be a good Christian. You know, mm-hmm. you know just a you little bit. You can't be too sane. Don't you think it's like. one of the most endearing things about Christianity? Oh, yeah. Historically? Yeah. I mean, but it's, but it's biblical to be jo- preacher Jonathan, right? Right. Yeah. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. So if that means if you're going to be not conformed to the pattern, you're always going to be perceived as, well, Paul, foolish, yeah. mm-hmm. crazy. And there's something just yeah. really offbeat by it in... Um, I, I bet that causes a lot of people who are close to the saints to go. Really, you're they're, you're talking about them? Like I know Teresa. <laughs> she's she's the. There's a reason people splash her with water when she's doing the dishes. You know, I mean, she's kind of weird. That's <laughs> a little different. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Okay, uh, you guys want to talk about science, Mike? Now, sure. You guys want to talk about the saints more? You good? Ready to move? No, I don't, yeah, you have a notebook out, Richard. I don't want to. Well, I, you know, I have notes on this. You know, I, I, I was trying to be very diligent. Yeah. I don't know what that means on the anagram. What does that mean? What number am I if I'm being diligent? Five. Is that right? <laughs> the journalist. <laughs> well, I don't, a, I don't want you... a strong wing. A strong wing of note-taking. Right. I, I just don't want you to lose that. So, uh, I'm on Science Mike. Let's go talk about Science Mike. Uh, Graves, Storm, so we've talked about him before. He's been on a couple times. Had you had any familiarity, Graves, with the... Uh, I've listened to some of the liturgists. Mm-hmm. Um, probably not as much as others, but... Yeah, he's... Uh, He's a really compelling voice right now. I think he's kind of like the project Richard is doing with integrating psychology and theology. I mean, there just aren't a lot of people doing Mm -hmm. it. Um, So he's trying to do something there aren't a lot of people trying to do at the level or depth that he's doing. He, I know for, particularly for um, the risk of sounding sexist, uh, particularly for men in my church between... 30 and 45 or 50 he is a very helpful guide mm-hmm. why do you think it's just men uh, it's not just men predominantly men it's i don't know i don't have a good working theory right now hmm. you just that's just i just know noticing? what yeah. i've been exposed or experienced yeah descriptive hmm. okay richard as uh I mean, compared to the three of us, you're the scientist in this room. <laughs> so <are> you <laughs> social scientist. <laughs> that just means you have more friends than normal okay, scientists. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is, Unless that's what that means. Is that, yeah. I have better social skills. <laughs> yeah. Okay, he's put on the reading glasses. I've, I, I'm very fascinated in your take on Science Mike because the amount of people who listen and connect to, to Mike are just out, uh, amazing uh, to see how much good he is doing in the lives of so many people. Mm-hmm. Um, and he comes across as such, and he is such a nice, hospitable, welcoming guy that I, I, I'm happy to see that. Um, but I'm curious your take on his incorporation, because you're do, like, like Josh is saying, you're doing the same thing, kind of like a hybrid of psychology and theology. He's doing he, science. 
theology? Yeah. No, I, I just think, you know, we've talked about this before, um, about Charles Taylor's, in, you know, we're living in a disenchanted scientific world. So sci- science is kind of the, for a lot of people, the, the only or the sole or the most authoritative arbiter of truth, mm-hmm. for better or worse. I mean, that, that's, that's the new, that science says what's true or not. And so for people struggling with faith, somebody that can kind of connect that as a criterion and, and it, it creates a, some scaffolding that before I think all you did is just, you just posited belief. You just, I know this is really outrageous, all these metaphysical Christian claims, you just got to believe it. Yeah. And, and there was no scaffold. There's no way to get there. But, but speaking in, using, connecting with science um, uses the resources on the ground. So I think it's apologetics, but it's different. It's, yeah. it's using resources on the ground. And then people think a lot about the Big Bang and cosmology, and they think about neuroscience. But, they, but he's not using that science to, to argue from design. Because like you, you were talking about the singularity at mm-hmm. the beginning. And, and he was very clear when he said, I'm not saying God started off the singularity. Mm-hmm. Like, like he, he ref- or that God needs to. Yeah, he refused to do like the Thomas Aquinas, there had to be a first mover. Like he doesn't go there. He just says, I'm just saying that the singularity is as mysterious as God. And that's a very different apologetics move. He's not trying to, he's creating plausibility structures. Hmm. He's not arguing for proofs. He's saying, he's giving people ways of, making something more credible to them and by saying we're willing to entertain mystery in yeah. science but we're not allowed to, you know we're not able to do it have, have um, any of you guys watched stranger things oh man yes okay so this is what's so fascinating i mean first of all it's just an incredibly well done yeah uh-huh. incredibly well done show and the, the actors are superior and but it, it is interesting that if we, we live in this that show has found a way to integrate mystery and science Mm -hmm. primarily through realms and dimensions and how are we connected in time and space and all that. Um, I would have loved to have heard you ask him about that. About stranger things? Just because it's so uh, culturally right now it's, it hit a spot with people. I have a blog series half written called the gospel according to stranger things. And part of it is on the nostalgia because it's Charles Taylor, modernism is mm-hmm. uh, a pit- pitiless ingratitude toward the past. So we keep going back 20 years because we can't reach Wherever further. we are. Yeah. yeah. You know, if I see you huddled up in your closet talking to a balled up thing at Christmas lights, <laughs> <laughs> trying to communicate. Yeah. Sadly, yeah. Sadly, Jonathan hasn't showered in two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sadly, that's not the weirdest thing I've ever seen him do, though. I mean, it's not. <laughs> so beyond, yeah, beyond nostalgia, what else? What's the other move? The big. Move uh, well, like there? that we're, we're starved for mystery. Yeah. And that was one of the things that I think that was tapping, yeah. tapping into. Yeah, yeah that. Well, the reality of evil. There are monsters oh, yeah. that can be defeated, right? Dragons can be defeated. Who said that? Well, I know Don't who's say attributed it. to, but... Anyway. It's Chesterton. He said it. I said that in a sermon, and an academic in our church came after me and said Chesterton didn't say oh, it. Oh, I love that academic. Yeah. I so love that. That's, uh. that's why I know who it's attributed to, but... But I, that's what the movie taps into. Yeah. It's taking science, right. but it's also accounting for the real... Uh, to use old scratch language, real experience of the principalities and powers, mm-hmm. these forces that are out there. Yeah. And the upside down. That's yeah. pretty crazy. Like the yeah. thin spaces between. Oh, yeah, the thin space move. Yeah. yeah. Where heaven and earth get so close, but it's the, a tree. It's the other way. Oh, I spoiled it. Yeah. <laughs> so going back to science, Mike. Pablo uh, Escobar dies. You spoiled <laughs> that, too. Dude, I knew he died, but why... I didn't know when he was going to die in the show, okay? That was a terrible move, theringer.com. You're the worst. Um, so what Science Mike's apologetic is, he puts things on the table and says, I can't connect these dots, but I still have faith. It seems to be like, okay, I don't understand this. Um, I, he was tweeting about this or talking about this, and it's basically the same, the same idea that um, I don't believe God is like this um, do sex machina kind of thing that's going to come in and save the day, um, but I still pray. And I believe uh, that Jesus was resurrected, but uh, I don't think all miracles... Say, some, and, but he's able to say, I believe these things, I know there's some gaps I'm having to make, and I'm okay with it. 
And I, I love that about him. I, I love also his introduction and incorporation of Andrew Newberg's the how God how prayer changes your brain. Have you guys read? that Oh, book? I loved when y'all were talking about that. Yeah, that was good stuff. Do you, so I, you, I haven't read the book. I but. wanted to ask: Is that does that right? Is that right? Well, I can't evaluate the neuroscience science, but but I do think in my experience, I resonated a lot with 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 what he was saying about how you can become so analytical, you lose touch mm-hmm. of the emotional aspects um, yeah. and and you almost have to kind of train those and practice the faith to kind of activate that whole God network and the God network reaches across all the different brain structure cortical structures. I think that's right. Don't you think Dr. Norsworthy? Yeah. So he gives a thumbs up over there. So, I mean, obviously, I mean, in one sense, let me, let me be clear. I mean, in one sense, the neurological language can be overplayed because any experience is neurological. You know, so, but, but, the description of the God network being emotional, affective, rational, all connected versus just being in the frontal cortex. I think there's a, there's a lot to that. And the way a skepticism can shape your brain to where you lose your ability to connect to a conversation with Jonathan and I have had lots. You lose your ability to experience enchantment yeah. at a neurological level. You just can't, you're not tapping into it. So he said, that, you know, there's a difference in you know, reading about a marital problem versus, you know, holding your wife's hand. Those are really two different experiences. And I think a lot of, my, as my sense is a lot of Christians on a skeptical journey or a deconstructing journey just read books and they read the New Atheists and they stop worshiping and they stop practicing. And I think their brain, their brains are changed. And, and therefore they say, so Science Mike is helpful to say this, I don't feel it anymore. I don't believe it anymore. He's saying, well, you've kind of practiced your way into an, a buffered self. Mm-hmm. You, you have neurologically shut yourself off from the intuitive things, um, the experiential things that you, kind of Richard Rohr was talking about, the, the, the God being almost everywhere. You just can't experience the world as charged with the grand of God anymore. With the grand of God anymore. No, I love it. I think, I think that's exactly right. That's, what I thought too. Um, he just said it really more Good. intelligently. Gooder than you. It also makes me, because I'm always in pastor mode, but it always makes me wonder about why that seems so easy for some people and so hard mm-hmm. for others back yeah. to the winter, summer. I just, I, I don't have a good explanation for why. Did you guys resonate mm-hmm. with what he said? I, I did resonate with this, and I was wondering as preachers if y'all did too. Um, the the stuff about how when you share an experience that you had with God, you are becoming, it's becoming more distant to you. And because you're releasing, it? yeah, well, because oh, you're, you're naming it, it, yeah, you're you're, you're describing it, of, you're shifting it out of the experiential parts of the yeah. brain into. It's like talking about sex, kind of. Yeah. Uh, hey, do you think that's a source of why pastors have faith? I problems? was wondering about that, um, or like, why they leave the, the church. Yeah. Well, and you're paid to keep having great experiences so you can yeah. effectively so tell stories about is, how great the experience And don't... When you <laughs> no, do I don't think them, that at all. I don't think that There's when no When you do connection. have some kind of experience or insight, your automatic thing is, I can use this. Yeah. Especially Instead, if you're a three, yeah. Yeah. I've never thought of the preacher constantly having to articulate faith that could be a mechanism that actually is deconstructing their ability to have faith. I mean, it makes perfect sense. I get that. Just never put those together. That's, the, sun, that, that's the Sunday night albatross that you but, feel. Yeah, but yeah. Like, that, like for decades, your brain, if, you're, if, if, pre, if science Mike's t- telling the truth, and I think he is, then every Sunday you're shaping your brain to turn experience, ineffable experiences into words or you know something in, in yeah. that Mm-hmm. Okay, so his. This is really good. So, if that's true, if that's all true, and I think it is, it seems like it's the responsibility of the preacher to be very judicious in what they choose to share Have secrecy. publicly. Yeah. yeah. That's For their own soul. Well, we, we, Larry and I were talking about just about how. In my experience of singing in the prison, I've, I've shared that mm-hmm. on the podcast before, the de- devil palooza about singing in the prison, and, and it, that's kind of one of the ways I recovered my faith. And I think it's interesting that you're commanded to sing as a practice, and I, and I, I think that's one of the, the mm-hmm. ways experiences and emotions are engaged um, that form us in powerful ways. 
So yeah. refusing to sing, you know, it's a... Right. When we sing, we pray twice, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, okay, so. at the risk of sharing one of my experiences, therefore I'm going to devalue it. Um, <laughs> I've, I, like, as someone who hopes to be a somewhat well-read Christian, I feel like I'm, I'm selling out by saying that part of my quiet time recently has been listening to, like, contemporary praise music. And that that... Uh, and you feel like a sellout? Is that what you well, say? Like I feel like it should be like you know I'm quoting um, the 12th century. You know, like oh, you feel like it's shallow. Yeah, like I feel like okay. it's what I should be doing is more erudite than that. I mean, it's just it's vain. It's vanity. That's what it is. But I, you, what? I know it's weird. <laughs> Sorry, you were being vulnerable. I should not have made the joke when you're being vulnerable. Go on, punching up. <laughs> Always had my hands down. <laughs> I don't know where I was going with that. No, no, no. But I found myself like that's been very formative uh-huh. for me, actually just listening to this music. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, there's, there's something that's beyond the, just the intellectual and you release yourself. And I think part of it for me is that if I have trust in like the person who's leading the music, I go, okay, I, I, I'm willing to go where they take me and I can be submissive to their description. And, and it does something to me. It, it, it just yeah. does, yeah. Well, it's interesting because I, I, I had a conversation with my preacher to my right here about this um, where I said, you know, a lot of seminary-educated pastors will go at the whole Jesus is my boyfriend thing. But I said what's ironic about that is that these seminary-educated pastors, to connect with James Martin, who know the saints, know that erotic and even homoerotic imagery fills the Christian contemporary tradition. You know, that I mean, the, the, these romantic visions of Jesus fill, I mean, if anybody yeah. knows church history well, knows that that is a part, the erotic aspect, and I think it's that effective aspect. And so all I have to say is I'll come alongside that and say amen to that. I think that we've dismissed a lot of those mm-hmm. very romantic and emotional songs because of an elitism that seminary education yeah. teaches us that that's, you know, but, um, but they are very evocative emotionally and very formative, I think. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so, Childers once told me that Jeff Childers, who's friend of the show, said that uh, after mentioning his name seven times, you're finally going to introduce him. Yeah, that really helped. He said that basically seminary is successful when you believe everything you used to believe, but for deeper and better reasons. Yeah, that like that's Roar's transcendent and included. Yeah, which I love so much. It's bring it all with you. So I mean, this is just a great example of that. Because did you not grow up listening to like DC Talk and? No, I mean, when I was... Like, Third Day was the big one for me. Yeah, going off to... I mean, I was only listening to acapella music. Not DC I was, Talk? I mean, when I was like 16, I, was I started... I like Rich Mullins. Yeah. That was mine. Love some Rich yeah. Mullins. But yeah, that's transcendent and include. Like, you bring that back in full circle, and yeah. now means more. Yeah, for sure. Okay, I think it's about time to wrap this thing up. Any final words, Brother Josh? Richard? Good. No, it was a good month, really. You got great guests. Richard, Josh, thank you so much for being here. <laughs> thanks for checking out newsworthy with norsworthy make sure to subscribe to the podcast on itunes you are now adjourned